0: Bible Church, on the web at wagp.net. This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of
1: Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions,
0: providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally
1: or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to The Bible Line, and for those first-time listeners, a special welcome. You can hear us not only here at 88.7, but through the internet at wagp.net. There's also an app you can download for your phone. met a gentleman the other day, he says, I love listening to The Bible Line, but when I get up to north, up going towards Columbia, I lose it. And I said, well, we have an app, wagp.net, and he said, I didn't know that, so that might be helpful to someone. For the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions, and if you have a particular issue, maybe a personal issue, a church issue, a ministry issue, and you're looking for biblical counsel, if we can be of help by God's grace, we will. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the local 843 exchange is 525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Well, Walter, good to be back. Let's go ahead and get started.
0: All right. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Joanna out of Bluffton, South Carolina, as a live dictation, and she writes I traveled with Pastor Brogy three years ago to Israel, and at that time I heard some Jewish people call themselves, and I quote, We are the children of the light and we are the light of the world. Could you please explain why they would call themselves as such?
1: Well, it's a good question. Uh, what comes initially to mind would be uh, the a couple of references. One is what God said through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And so in Deuteronomy 4, God describes Israel as a light to the nations and as a testimony to God's people. That's what they were supposed to be. They weren't always that way, but indeed they were commissioned by God to be that way. To be his personal representative. Let me read a couple verses here in Deuteronomy 4. Uh, we read, and by the way, this is the Deuteronomos, Deutero is a second law. So this is the second giving of the law, we might say. That's the theme of Deuteronomy. If you remember the children of Israel were in such rebellion uh, that God had said that all those 20 years of age and up would not enter into the promised land. So this is a new generation. And he's recapitulating what he had taught earlier uh, to the first generation. He said, see, I've taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded you that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So he said, keep and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of here it is of all the peoples, the goyim, the, the Gentiles, you could say who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That was their mission. They weren't to take this revelation that God had entrusted to them and just sit on it and keep it to themselves. But like the church today, they were to share it. They were a light to the nations. Now, uh, the prophet Isaiah, and this is probably I don't know for certain because I don't know the individual that you're describing, but I can pretty much tell you from my dialogue with Orthodox people where they might be coming from and where this individual might be coming from. In Isaiah, the 49th chapter, um, Isaiah said, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. There it is again, the glory of God uh, was to be demonstrated uh, through the nation of Israel. Uh, But, of course, um, they didn't always do that. In fact, they didn't do it very well at all. And so what's interesting in the prophet Isaiah, if you know Isaiah, there are four major servant passages. The servant of the Lord is a reference to the Messiah. So, for instance, maybe the most famous servant passage would be Isaiah 53. But there's one here, one of the servant songs in Isaiah 49 as well. And so he goes from speaking to the nation— who is supposed supposed to shine for God's glory, to an individual in verse 6. He says, is it too small a thing that you, and you now has become singular, you singular should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you, singular, a light of the nations, so that my salvation, may reach to the ends of the earth. And so because Israel did not do their job uh, efficiently, God was going to have his will done no matter what, and ultimately through the Messiah himself. And so, as you read the servant passages in Isaiah, they can refer to no one other than the nation of Israel. You can't say, for instance, in Isaiah 53, that the people were without sin. In fact, that's one of the highlights of Isaiah. He recounts their sin over and over and over again and their need for forgiveness. Now, interestingly, when you come into the New Testament, this is how they understood it. So, Um, When you're dealing with Orthodox Jews and you ask them, what do you think about uh, Isaiah 53, if they've even read it? And it's a forbidden chapter for most Orthodox Jews. They've never really delved into it, but some have. And there are quick responses, well, that's not about the Messiah, because sometimes you could read a passage like Isaiah 53 all by itself and ask a jewish person who do you think this is referring to you know what their first initial answer is is if they've had some exposure to christianity well that that's that's about your jesus well it is about our jesus but it's actually out of your bible the 53rd chapter of the prophet isaiah it's like an eyewitness standing at the foot of the cross so what do they do with the servant songs they say well this is not in reference to the messiah this is in reference to us as a nation Yet when you come into the New Testament, interestingly, uh, God again is clear that, no, this is not a reference to uh, the people of Israel. This is a reference to the Messiah himself. So if you remember on that occasion when uh, they go into the temple and uh, they meet a gentleman by the name of Simeon who had been waiting for the coming of the Messiah, why was he waiting so expectantly? because he knew this was the time frame based on the 70-week prophecy of Daniel 9. Daniel 9 pinpoints the time frame by which the Messiah must come. In fact, after the Messiah is struck down or killed, he then describes the destruction of the temple. So if you happen to be Jewish and you're looking for a good candidate for the Messiah, you should look for someone who came before the desolation of the temple which of course happened in 70 A.D., and Jesus fulfilled all this. So it says there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law— Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And here's the Isaiah reference, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So again, the Messiah, as Simeon understood it, in this servant passage in Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53, was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Interestingly, when you come to, I think it's Matthew 12, this is a passage I will often uh, look at when I uh, go to Israel with people. Uh, One of the things that we do is we go to Capernaum. Capernaum is one of four critical places that every believer should be aware of when you consider the life of of the Messiah. He's born in Bethlehem. That's predictive by the prophet Micah. He'd be raised in Nazareth. That's what the prophet said of him. He would uh, die in Jerusalem, be raised and ascended in Jerusalem. But before that would happen, his three-year home base, so to speak, would be Capernaum. And so Capernaum is actually a place that is spoken of by the prophets. It's predicted that Messiah would go to a place called Capernaum. Now, while the name is not given there, the geographical uh, restrictions are. So let me actually turn to Matthew uh, chapter 4, and let's see, here it is. In Matthew 4, we read, now when Jesus heard that John, speaking of John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. So Jesus, Luke 4, explains why he leaves Nazareth. If you remember, they wanted to throw him over a cliff there. And if you go to Israel with me, we have a time scheduled in May of 2025. I don't know that will happen. We set the date before the October 7th war. We haven't announced it, but maybe things will change and we'll go, God willing. So he comes and he settles in Capernaum, which is by the sea, and the region of Zebulun in Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken of through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Gentile of the Gentile Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And so when you look at the uh, logistics in terms of uh, on one side of the Jordan, beyond the Jordan, in the Galilee of the Gentiles, in the region where Zebulun and Naphtali would in essence be assigned their land under Moses, there's only one city that can fit, and it's Capernaum. But what's interesting, and this is why I draw your attention to it, is, again, uh, this is descriptive of what the Messiah would do. Uh, uh, He would be a light to people sitting in darkness. So this is another passage from Isaiah that describes the Messiah as fulfilling that role. So to get pinpointed here, Joanna, with your question, uh, the Jewish people obviously reject Yeshua as the Messiah. They don't believe that. And so they have to do something with these Messianic passages instead of them being pinpointed to an individual, which to deny is a violation of basic grammatical Hebrew rules, but it's a denial also of the broader context of what the prophet is saying. He's clearly speaking of of an individual, and there's no way, shape, or form the nation can fulfill it. So why are they making this statement? Well, some of them are making it because of a Jewish evangelism that has been taking place in Israel through pilgrims that travel there. And they're obedient to the Lord, take the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so when there's opportunity to be of witness, they're going to mention Jesus is fulfilling this. And so they're quick to respond. Wear that light. Uh, This is not in reference to Yeshua. This is in reference to us. So that's the genesis of it. That's where it's coming from. Uh, And it comes from a rabbi by the name of Rashi, who lives in the 12th century. And he's a very, very highly followed uh, Jewish rabbi to this day. Uh, And so, sadly, what people often read is not what the text itself says, but what rabbinical teachings say about the text. And so, in that respect, the Jewish people today who study in yeshivas, which is kind of a, a male seminary, uh, they don't read the Scriptures as much as they read what men have said about the Scriptures, men like this rabbi that I just mentioned. Good question. Let's go to the next.
0: All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from Angel out of Charleston, South Carolina, and she writes, Regarding Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, Calvinists use this to prove the perseverance of the saints. How would you explain this verse in context so they can understand salvation is not works-based? What is the best way to explain this verse dealing with the tribulation?
1: Well, that's the subject that's at hand. Uh, Jesus had just stated in Matthew 23, 37, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. And if you don't pay attention to that, sometimes you'll miss the immediate context. And so to understand Matthew 24, you have to understand the end of chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. I might say, by the way, not unable, but unwilling. And there's a difference uh, because God makes man a free moral agent. Then he says, Behold, your house, which, by the way, is a reference repeatedly uh, in the Old Testament and in some places in the New Testament to the temple, Uh, your house, meaning the temple, is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, uh, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quotation from a Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118, 26. And so he is repeating a great truth, and it's unfolded in kernel form in the Old Testament, but it's stated specifically in the New Testament. John, for instance, in the prologue of his gospel says he came to his own, but his own received him not, but as many as received him. So when he came to his own, the Jewish people, they didn't receive him. Does that mean God is done with Israel? No, just read Romans 9, 10, and 11. God is still going to finish his plans through the nation of Israel. And Jesus specifically says in this verse, I cannot come again. Until who? Until you, the Jewish people, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they came out from the temple, the house, and they end up on a place called the Mount of Olives. If you've been to the Mount of Olives, if you've stood there with me or you've seen pictures of it, you're looking down the mountain, across the Kidron Valley, directly to the Temple Mount. Today, you'd see that large structure, that golden dome building uh, called the Dome of the Rock. And, of course, he's there. They're looking at these buildings and uh, the temple buildings, and he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to him, see to it that no one misleads you. And then he begins to unfold these signs that will perfectly, by the way, parallel the sealed judgments that are found in Revelation chapter 6. So people will say, well, these are the birth pangs. They are for the time of the tribulation. So there's a lot of hype today. Well, look at how many earthquakes we've had. Look at how many natural disasters we're having. Look at this growing apostasy. Look at this growing immorality. We're in the birth pangs. No, we're not. We're in the pregnancy. Now, to have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. And so while I think you can build a case that there are an increase in all of these things, Technically, if you want to be precise, these are not the birth pangs. Those are still in the future. Oh, we've got more wars than ever. Well, yeah, but you haven't seen anything yet. Wait until the water breaks. Wait until the church is removed. Wait until the restraining ministry of the Spirit of God through the church stops. Then literally all hell will break loose, nation against nation. These are just the uh, merely the beginning of birth pangs. Once you hit two fifteen or 24.15 of this chapter, a quotation from the prophet Daniel, when the abomination of desolation takes place, which Paul puts as the center point of the great tribulation, as Jesus is doing here, and where are they getting that from? From Daniel chapter 9. And so the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is divided into two halves of 1260 days or 42 months. And right in the middle of that seven-year period is this event called the abomination of desolation. So before that event happens, we read this in Matthew 24, 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. So, there's always been apostasy, and there's growing apostasy in fulfillment of what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4 1. In the latter times, men would depart from the faith, they would fall away from the faith. There's apostasy, there's a denial of basic biblical truth. We're seeing that fleshed out in our day like never before. But that's not the apostasy, there's the articular use of the term. In places like 2 Thessalonians 2, again, when the church is removed, uh, the apostasy, the great departure of the faith will unfold. And with that will come many false prophets. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, here's your question, but I've put it in context as you've asked the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now this is called the perseverance of the saints. So what do we mean by enduring to the end? There's two major positions amongst conservative Bible believing teachers on this particular text. Some will say well those who endure the end to the end that is those who survive the tribulation they'll be saved out of the tribulation and will enter into the promised kingdom. Others would say and I would I think, go with this second view in light of what has just been mentioned of this increasing hatred towards the Jews. And this, again, is fulfillment of what Zechariah the prophet says in the 12th chapter, and he recapitulates in Zechariah 14. All the nations of the world are going to go against Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, of course, stands for the nation of Israel. Many times a a single person stands for the nation or a single city stands for the nation. And so that's still in the future. But again, the stage is being set today. October the 7th, in my view, was a turning point because we saw in a holistic way like we've never seen in the history of the nation since they were formed on May the 14th, 1948, uh, this worldwide hostility. Well, that's going to show itself in its greatest expression during the tribulation. And so what's going to be the modus operandi for those who confess Jesus? They're going to cut their heads off. And so, look, if you're a confessing believer, how will you know whether or not your faith is true? The same way you know it's true today. You don't reject the Messiah. And of course, when there's the guillotine or whatever means they're going to use to take your head off is in front of you, what will your faith say? If if when Idi Amin in the nineteen seventies sent his troops into congregations of born-again Christians with machine guns, and they said, Those of you that are followers of Jesus, step outside. Those who are not true believers, you can remain in here safely. It was a real test of their faith. And the true believers went outside and then they machine gunned them. And missionaries would see entire congregations floating down the river of people who would rena- not renounce Christ. What if a gun were put to your head and you're asked to renounce Christ? What would you do? That's really the context here. The context is in reference to to the persecution that will take place during the time of the Great Tribulation, what will you do? The one who perseveres to the end, he's the, he has the genuine item. So there's an acrostic that's used in, in Reformed theology. It's called TULIP, and there are aspects of TULIP that are biblically sound, some that I would not agree with. But the P in TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, is, stands for Perseverance of the Saints. That is, a true child of God will persevere. And by the way, 1 John 2.19 teaches that, not just of tribulation saints, but of church saints. And so sometimes people do theology by experience. I got stopped by a couple going out of church on Sunday, and it was obvious they had done theology by experience. And they didn't like what I said in reference to uh, the apostles uniquely being able to do certain healings and miracles. That's a sign of an apostle. That's Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So that's not my argument, that's his. But I made it clear to them, I said God can still heal supernaturally if he so chooses. God can do whatever he wants. The question is, does God do it through an individual as these fakes and frauds are uh, postulating today to naive people? And so, nonetheless, in 1 John 2.19, to zone in on this, you don't do theology by experience. Experience is always to submit to the authority of Scripture. Just because someone does a miracle doesn't make it true. Again, in the Olivet Discourse, there will be all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles, and they will convince many people they would deceive if possible, and it's a kind of conditional statement in Greek meaning that's not— they could deceive even the elect, but the elect won't be deceived because they've been forewarned and they'll know that these men are not bringing revelation consistent with what has already been revealed. And so you don't do theology by experience. Well, I had this healing. Well, look, there's eight instances in the Bible where Satan does the miraculous, where he does power. Paul calls them in 2 Thessalonians 2, false miracles. He doesn't mean they weren't miracles. They're real miracles. They're just done by illegitimate power, by Satan's power. And so you submit your experience to the authority of Scripture. And so in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. So you have people today who teach you can lose your salvation, that you won't truly persevere to the end by experience. Well, Joe Blow was a member of our church. He wasn't just a member, he was a leader, he was a deacon, he was the pastor now he totally renounces Christ. Look at Josh Harris. You know, Christian publishers produced his books. He totally renounces the Lord Jesus now. At least he's not hostile towards evangelicals like John Piper's son sadly is. But um, he totally rejects Jesus as Lord. And there are Arminians who say, well, you see, he was saved and he lost it. No, he didn't lose it. He never had it. They went out from us, these false teachers, But they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it might not be shown that they all are not of us. So the Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. In fact, earlier in that chapter, I should have read it, I just lost it, but let me go back to 1 John 2. Again, he distinguishes the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. And he says, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandment. The the one who says, "I've, I've come to know him, does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So a true believer, A, will never renounce Christ. That's what the Reformers meant by perseverance. And two, they'll give evidence that they are a genuine believer. Hey, listen, Paul will say to the Corinthians, because he wasn't sure in all of them in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourself to see if you be of the faith. Peter in 2 Peter 1.10 will say make sure that your calling an election is certain. That it's sure that you don't have an illegitimate confession as you see in Matthew 7. Which by the way this couple quoted to me. Uh, going out the door, interestingly. Well, what about these people who, you know, did miracles in his name and all these other things? And I said, yeah. Jesus said, I never knew you. Not I once knew you. I never knew you. You were never born again. But how did they do the miracles? Through false powers. And again, there are examples in both the Old and the New Testament of people who cast out demons, people who preach in the name of the Lord, people who do miracles in the name of the Lord but they're doing under an illegitimate power. Now, I should say parenthetically within the reform camp, and my senses is, is this is a minority, is that while some would affirm unconditional election, they don't affirm unconditional assurance. And so you got a guy like R.C. Spurl, who I just was about in shock when I heard him say this, because I didn't think he fell within that realm of the reform camp, but He was almost like not certain that he was going to go to heaven. And you can listen to some of these statements that he made towards the end of his life. He was dying, sadly. He drank in moderation and smoked in moderation and led a lot in the reform camp to do that. Now, he apologized for his smoking in moderation and realized that that was foolish, and he had a real hard time giving up cigarettes which were had a real hold on him. Um, but he ruined his lungs, and that's why he was on oxygen towards the end. I'm not saying anything that's not true of him and that everyone doesn't know who's from those circles. But interesting, like, for instance, when James Montgomery Boyce, he was holding a conference. I've read the transcript online. And James Montgomery Boyce was a great godly pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church, in Philadelphia. Interestingly, he was a dispensationalist, unlike most Presbyterians. He did not believe that God had forsaken Israel, that God would complete history through the people of Israel. But he's on his deathbed, and R.C. comes out and says, let's pray for James, for Jim tonight, because he's on his deathbed, and let's pray that he will believe to the end. And R.C. expressed the same kind of sentiment. Now, some people might say, well, that's humility, and maybe it is. I've met people in the Mennonite community who say that, who say, well, the only way I know I'll persevere is that I'll never renounce Christ, but that seemingly seems to deny that we can have a true assurance of salvation, and so I would not agree with that, and let me just say in fairness to my Reformed brothers, most of them would not agree with that either. So, perseverance of the saints, just to sum it up. It's the doctrine that you're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere, you will never renounce Christ, and you will live for him. Your life will change. You'll have the fruit of a changed life. That's the essence of perseverance of the saints, and it's often summarized under the doctrine, once saved, always saved, that once we're saved, we're eternally secure. Certainly, a a doctrine that's abused and that's why in our handout on assurance slash eternal security and the basic discipleship course that you can find at Search the Scriptures, we answer that. That's an important question. I spent a lot of time on it. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right, Pastor Carl, eight four three five two five one eight five nine. Again, that's eight four three five two five one eight five nine. Our next question comes from Carlton out of Savannah, Georgia, and he writes, I am recently retired. My income now comes from money I've saved through my company 401K and Social Security. All of the money I put into my 401k, I paid my tithe on. And all of the money I contributed to Social Security, I paid my tithe on. My company matched my 401 contribution up to 6%. The company, by law, matched what I paid into Social Security and Medicare dollar for dollar. I believe in the tithe, but now that I am on a fixed income, would it be wrong to only tithe on that part of my income that I calculate to be the 401k contributions and dividends, and interest gained from all of the contributions and on that portion of social security that I calculate to be the company match?
1: Okay, good good question. So, you know, sometimes people have asked this in a number of different contexts. They'll say to me, Pastor Gar, you mean you're going to ask some little old widow who's on a fixed income uh, getting her monthly social security check to tithe? My answer is yes, of course I am, because that's what God commands. And God's going to take care of that little old widow who ties. And I've yet to see a little old widow who ties that the Lord did not abundantly take care of. I've yet to see one. But again, I don't theo- do theology by experience. The only exception to that is someone who's been living in disobedience and rebellion in other areas of their life. Sometimes God uses finances as a way to take his children to the woodshed because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And if you were with us on Wednesday night, we looked at that quotation from the book of Proverbs that the writer of the Hebrews in the 12th chapter quotes, and we're reminded that discipline has actually two dimensions to it. Some of it is quite positive. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It's more like what I would call on-the-job training, but then there are times when it's corrective discipline, and sometimes God uses uh, finances. So understand, tithing is not like some silver bullet It you know to, to see God's hand over your finances. There's a number of biblical principles that all work in conjunction with one another, like what God says about saving, what God says about spending, what God says about debt. So some people say, well, I'm tithing but my finances are a disaster. i said, of course they are. You spent money you hadn't earned. You presumed on the future. And that's in contrast distinction to what God has revealed in scripture. I'm not talking about buying a house where technically if you lose a house, you know, you, you don't own the bank, anything. I'm talking about your daily kind of uh, bread needs like, you know, tires for the car and the grocery bill, And when people spend money they haven't earned and the culture does everything in its power to encourage this, this is why for the first time in our nation's history, Americans are now $1 trillion in debt, in credit card debt. It's just beyond belief where this whole thing is headed. But let me just say, I would say that you obviously are expressing something very, very different, a different spirit. You've been tithing your whole life. And you have even in advance calculated, you know, the portion that uh, you put into your 401k. A lot of people won't tithe on that until they receive it, which is just as well as anyway, because as a general principle, what God puts in your hand, that's what you give on. Um, But nonetheless, if you've already tithed on that portion in your 401k, and now you're looking at, oh, what my company matched or increase, increase, you know, it's like – Someone says I put $250,000 in the bank and I tithed on it all. Well, I put it in a CD, okay, uh, and I make uh, 5% interest. Then the increase on that 250000 that you are already tithed on would be the interest income, so to speak. And so you're thinking about it right. So technically, no, I would say to you, no, you, you don't have to on your fixed income. The fixed income really has nothing to do with it but you've already tithed on it. And so, yes, uh, that money that you've already calculated, you as having received even future funds and you tithed on it, you don't have to tithe on it again. But I think there's a bigger question here that you need to make sure, just in terms of heart check, um, that you're following That tithing is not purely an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. It's not like, well... 90% 90% of it is mine, and 10% of it is God's. That's not really what we find in Scripture. It's all God's. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, uh, Psalm 24.1. And if that's true, if everything's God's, and I'm just the steward of it. It's not my house. It's God's house. It's not my car. It's God's car. It's not my bank account. It's God's bank account. And so, of course, in this passage in Malachi 3, and yes, I believe tithing is for today. And there are some respected people who disagree with me, but they're differing with 1900 years of church history. Uh, The first person who popularized the idea that tithing is not for today uh, put out a study Bible, and I think he was wrong. I think he was dead wrong with the conclusion that he made. But will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And he did that in 1909. And again, I I, I think he was incorrect. But because a study Bible, for the most part, where there was helpful notes, and there were many helpful notes, had never been available before, uh, people uh, thought, well, I guess tithing doesn't apply anymore. Well, it does. And remember, tithing was done before the law was instituted. It was done during the law. It was commended after the law. And so we shouldn't cancel what God has said because it's not simply part of God's ceremonial law. It's part of God's moral law. Abraham begins the process. He commences it. Jacob continues it. Moses commands it. Jesus commends it. We shouldn't cancel it. And so that's important. Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? Let me underscore that, and offerings. You're curse with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe, singular, into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now, and this says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, and then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts, and all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. And so our finances, among other things, are part of the testimony that we give to an unbelieving world. And when you see Christians declaring bankruptcy and Christians who are constantly struggling with just paying basic needs, there's something wrong, and that's a bad testimony to an unbelieving world. Now, understand, I don't for one second agree with prosperity theology, the Kenneth Copelands and the uh, Hagans and the Joel Olsteins and Creflo Dollar and all these con men. That's what they are. They're con men. They're false teachers. So I'm not teaching prosperity theology, but I am affirming what God has clearly commanded. So they had robbed him in tithes and offerings. And so it's not a 90-10% relationship. It's all God's. And so we start with the tithe, the 10%. But it's not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. And so God may lead someone to give above and beyond the tithe and to trust him with a special need and a special gift. And there are a number of opportunities even in Israel's History where they had opportunity to do that, even when they harvested their fields. God said, You you, you leave the corners of the field uncut for who? The alien and the orphan. Uh, If you lost one of your sheep and he wandered away, uh, leave that for the alien, leave that for the orphan. And if you do that, God says, in Deuteronomy, I'll bless you abundantly for your obedience. And I suppose how big a man's corners were, how big the edges of the field were, were an expression of how great his heart was. So I just say to you, just don't make this some legalistic thing. It might be that all you will be able to give is the 10th, and you will be obedient to that. But you also want to be sensitive to the Spirit of God, that he might lead you to give above and beyond the 10th. And so you see offerings that would extend even in the New Testament in the Acts beyond the, uh, the local assembly that you're a member of. I tell people all the time, your tithe doesn't belong to WAGP. It doesn't belong to Search the Scriptures. It belongs to the local church that you should be a member of. Now, if God leads you to give a percentage above the tithe to a group like, you know, Search the Scriptures or this station or other great ministries and wonderful. We're happy to receive it. But it's not a substitute for giving to the local assembly. Anyway, it's a great question, Colton. And let me just say to someone listening, because I'm sure maybe I've sparked some interest or some needs, I have a course online. I updated it most recently in 2018. And it's, uh, I think it's called the you and your finances or the theology of money. I've taught it three or four times. What's the latest edition? Do you uh, know?
0: Finance is God's way. Pastor yeah,
1: finance is God's way. Um, and I teach it usually about every five to eight years. and uh, But it will walk you through all that the Scripture says about stewardship, because it's not yours, it's his, about giving, about saving, about debt, about investing, and about planning, and so the final stage planning deals with making this a uh, budget uh, where you take all these biblical principles and you flesh it out in an organized way. Anyway, let's go to the next question.
0: All right, Pastor Carl, eight four three five two five one eight five nine. 525 1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, our next question comes in as a live dictation from Michael out of Beaufort, South Carolina. He writes... Is it scriptural for Christians to get divorced and then get married again?
1: Well, good question. Depends on the context of the remarriage. Um, I'm still here in Malachi because I just read from Malachi 3 a few verses before. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. That's what God thinks about divorce. He hates it. So you never want to pursue something that God hates. Now, that may seem rather rigid, but that's this simple reading of Scripture. In Mark chapter 10, when some Pharisees come and they question the Lord Jesus on marriage, and there was a point of debate, we read some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And the testing was over a key argument that is found in the prophet Moses in the 24th chapter, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And so their question was, what's that indecency? And there are two principal rabbinical schools of thought over how to apply and interpret. Matthew twenty four one. there was a school of Halel and the school of Shammai. Halel said, any reason at all. She's gained weight. You don't like it. She's fat. Oh, her mother-in-law, she drives you crazy. She burns the food. I mean, it's endless. You can read in some of these midrashes some of the explanations. You say, you've got to be kidding me. And then you've got the school of Shammai, which was a much more conservative school, and they basically said – No, um, you can only divorce your wife if she's been maritally unfaithful. And so when they test him, they're basically asking him, whose side are you on? And he answered them and said, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. So most people, when they go to get married, they don't look for a judge. Most people look for a preacher. Uh, Some don't care anymore. They'll go to the some notary and they'll get it stamped. But let me just say... Marriage is something that God puts together. I may officiate, but I've never married anyone. I just officiate what God has done. And what God has joined. no man is to separate. Well, in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. If she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So you divorce your wife, you marry somebody else, you're committing adultery. Maybe you've never been married. You marry a guy who's been divorced. You're committing adultery. Why? Because the only legitimate way to break off a marriage is for God to break it. And what God has joined, no man is to separate. And the only thing that separates it biblically is death. And so Luke 16, 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. No exception, just straight on out. That's pretty tough to take. Romans, the seventh chapter, but I'm trying to put some steel in your spine if you're thinking about divorcing your wife instead of working it out. Um, He says this, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined and joined here contextually means married. And some translations render it that way. She is married to another man. So what is his point? Death breaks the marriage covenant. 1 Corinthians 7 Paul is giving advice to some people, and he says this, I wish all men were as I. However, each man has his own gift, one in this manner, another in that. I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, at them married, Then he says to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And if the shoe's on the other foot, the husband should not divorce his wife. Where did Jesus say this? By the way, he says, what I'm telling you is not from me. It's from the Lord in distinction to what he says in verse 12. To the rest, I say not the Lord, meaning this is not a subject Jesus addressed, but I'm going to speak on his behalf with the same authority as an apostle. And so he says, if a woman has to leave, and sometimes she does, so there's already people who are arguing with me as she, they hear me, and they say, well, my husband beats up the kids black and blue. He, he's a serial adulterer, and you're telling me to stick with him? Well, if you leave, what are your options? Well, based on what Jesus said, then only death breaks the marriage bond, as Paul just said in Romans 7. You remain unmarried or you be, un, or you be reconciled to your husband. Now, there is an exception in Matthew 19, and the exception has been abused since the time of a Greek Roman Catholic scholar who lives during the time of Martin Luther. And the exception says, and I say to you in Matthew nineteen nine, the same incident, by the way. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he takes them back. Well, what's God's original intention? His original intention was that the two become one, and what God has joined, no one is to separate. Well, why did Moses give? Uh, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? He said, "Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives." Again, it was a different covenant. There were things that were permitted in the um, the way the work, Spirit of God worked under the old covenant than the way He works under the new covenant. Under the Old Testament, the relationship of the Spirit to a godless world and the relationship of the Spirit to the believer was very, very much different. Uh, The Scripture could say that David was a man after God's own heart. Wait a minute, David had a bunch of wives. (laughs) He wouldn't even be considered a believer today. But because of the hardness of man's heart, God permitted some things. And so, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another woman commits moikeia. Two different Greek words. People read the same into their minds. Most people read this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another commits adultery. That's not what he is saying. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication, sexual immorality, immorality, depending on your English Bible, And marries another commits adultery. Two different words. Why? Because he has two different thoughts that are in view. And so the Lord speaks of what comes out of the heart of man, fornications and adulteries just a few chapters earlier. Is he repeating himself? No, not at all. Just as he's not repeating himself here. So why the exception of Matthew? Because Jews practice betrothal. And if you're betrothed, you're called husband and wife. There are four Old Testament examples. There's one in the New Testament with Joseph and Mary. And so the only way to break off a betrothal was to write a certificate of divorce. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, assuming Mary had been immoral, wants to obey Moses, and he's going to put her away, but not publicly, secretly, because he loves her. But he wants to obey God. He loves God more. And the angel comes and says, no, what's happened is a supernatural pregnancy. And in faith, he believes this has never happened in the history of the world. But Joseph is a man of faith, and he believes. And so the exception was found during the betrothal period where you were betrothed. It's different from engagement for 12 months, typically. And if during that time you're unfaithful, uh, you could put away your spouse You had a legal means. Why? Because the marriage covenant had not been fulfilled. By the way, Jesus likens his relationship to his people to marriage. And so he describes the church as the bride of Christ. That's how we're described by John in the Revelation as well. It's not by accident because when a man wanted to get married, he would go to the prospective bride's father and they would agree on a purchase price. And he would pay that price. It was a demonstration that he could leave and cleave, that he could afford this woman, so to speak. And then he would go away for a period of time, and he would prepare a place for his bride. And then they would come back. Almost all Jewish weddings took place at night. Most today in Israel take place at night. It's a tradition. And so Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25. They didn't no, the day or the hour, but they knew the week and they were ready each night. And one night they didn't have enough oil and the bridegroom comes and he blows the shofar and five are ready, five are not, five leave to get more oil and they miss the bridegroom. And so they would come and there would be a great procession to the place that the man had prepared. The marriage would be consummated and then they would uh, be forever together. Well, again, this is likened to the church. The father agreed on a purchase price with the son. And just as that bride and groom and a Jewish betrothal still still to this day drink from a cup to seal the covenant, Jesus offers the cup of the new covenant at the, at the Lord's table. And he takes the Passover meal and he redefines it. And he reminds us constantly when we celebrate the Lord's table of the price that was paid. And now where is he? He's gone to prepare a place for us. And he'll come back. The trumpet of God will be sounded and he'll get his bride and we'll be with him forever. So if your wife dies, you're free to remarry. If she hasn't, you've committed adultery. What do you do with that? We live in a culture where divorce is rampant. We've gone from one in a hundred marriages ending in divorce in 1923, the year my dad was born, to over 50 in 100. In any church that's evangelistic, that reaches the culture, more than half the people, usually even more than half, more than the average. Why? Because sometimes divorced people, like the harlots and the sinners and the tax collectors, are under deep guilt, and they're most open to the truth of forgiveness. So you can't unscramble eggs. If you're in a marriage today, that's God's will for your life, but you can't make excuses for it either. And it's important that if you've been on a second, and I meet people on third and fourth and even fifth marriages, can't unscramble eggs. Neither do you presume on God's grace. Well, God can forgive abortion. I guess I'll just go out and have an abortion so he can forgive me. No, you don't do that. You don't test the grace of God. Anyway, we are out of time. I hope that's helpful to this listener. Uh, you might want to go and listen to my most recent sermon from Malachi. You can download the Search the Scriptures app. Just go to the app store, type Search the Scriptures in. Remember, Jesus said Search the Scriptures because they speak of me. You'll see kind of a blue triangle. That's the one you want. And all of these messages are there. I hope you will follow Search the Scriptures on YouTube. That will help us. If you go to YouTube, follow Search the Scriptures. We've got other accounts, but follow Search the Scriptures. Why? Why? Because the higher number of followers we have, the more through the algorithms and all the rest will show up. And more lost people and saved people will have an opportunity to click and listen on these things. Well, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us today. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ.